You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of law at UCLA Law School, where he teaches and writes about employment discrimination law, election law, constitutional law, education law, fair housing law, poverty and inequality, and distributive justice. Before joining the UCLA faculty, he taught for a decade at the University of Texas Law School, where he was the Mars McLean Professor in Law. Holding a PhD in politics from Oxford University, his latest book is titled The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Joseph Fishkin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And I'll just also give a shout out to my co-author and longtime Texas colleague, Willie Forbath, who also is on uh, this book. Thanks for uh, having me to talk about it. Great. Um, so firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Sure. So uh, I was a political theorist before heading even to law school, and I kind of knew that why I wanted to go to law school was uh, to explore some more applied, not just pure theory aspects of some of the questions that I found most interesting, both about democracy and about inequality. And so, um, yeah, that's my that's my one sentence story of how I went from, I actually started out in journalism, how I eventually went to, to political theory and graduate school and then, uh, and then into law. Okay. So your latest book is titled the anti-oligarchy constitution, reconstructing the economic foundations of American democracy. So I wanted to start by asking about the term oligarchy and what you mean by it in, in the modern American context. Yeah, thanks. So, we uh, came to this term, my co-author Willie Forbeth and I, uh, in part because it was a term that Americans have used a lot in many periods of our history, although you're right to note that it's not as common lately, although Bernie Sanders is a fan, I think. <laughs> um, at the founding, Americans talked a little more about aristocracy, but it turned to oligarchy pretty quickly, and the Reconstruction Republicans talked a lot about the slave oligarchy. Today, uh, what I think that term should conjure up is uh, the image of undemocratic political power that comes from having a lot of economic power and wealth. So this is an area that a lot of uh, political scientists like Marty Gillins, and I mean, I could start rattling off half a dozen uh, people who have, have noticed that there's uh, a deep connection in the U.S. system between uh, wealth and political power. We still have uh, a system that I think is fairly characterizable as a democracy, but it's certainly a flawed democracy. And one of the many flaws is the way that um, our system caters to the interests of people who have enough money to be major uh, forces in our politics. So that means not just enough to, you know, be a small donor on a campaign, which is something, uh, and those people have more influence than people who don't, 
but uh, people who can give millions or even billions of dollars uh, or spend that money to influence the shape of our politics uh, have a surprising degree of influence. So the word oligarchy is deliberately provocative. Obviously, we are not Russia. We don't live in a society with a um, permanent, complete sort of oligarchic ruling class and a destruction of our democratic system. But the worry is, and this is a worry that has been a major theme in American political reform. I mean, you can hear these words from Teddy Roosevelt or, you know, many different points if you, if you want to listen for them, um, that there are, uh, there's too much power in too few hands. That's a problem in terms of our democracy, not just a problem in terms of, um, questions of inequality. Okay, so one thing that sort of jumps out at me here um, is that usually when we talk about the, the word oligarchy, um, it's usually not um, it's usually not used as sort of the um, the winners in a in a merit based system. Um, so I think in a in a country like America, I think we can argue that it, it's there's a, a high degree of social mobility. Uh, most of the the wealthiest people in America, I think, actually the vast vast majority of them didn't inherit their wealth, but rather made it by providing. Um, goods and services in a market economy. And so the people that do have the most wealth are the ones that are the most competent. Um, and so it's a competency-based system. So the people that are the most competent um, naturally wind up, um, you know, pursuing either the, the highest paying careers or starting the best, um, the most valuable businesses, that sort of thing. Um, and um, from there, I, I would say that, okay, even if we, we can see that these people, because of their wealth, have a greater ability to influence political campaigns, I think that's just sort of a, a reality of life, right? Political campaigns cost millions and billions of dollars because you have to get the word out. And so naturally, the people who have the, the resources to do that are going to be more successful in political campaigns than someone who has no resources at all. Um, and so would, would you say that in a system with as much social mobility where ev anyone can get wealthy on the basis of competence, where the vast majority of our wealthy people that you would s sort of characterize as oligarchs in this sense got there through competence and through providing value through goods and services to, to society in a market-based economy, would you still view that as an issue? Well, uh, there's a sort of would question there, and the answer is yes. But I think it is worth unpacking a couple of the major leaps that you made in the question, um, the question of whether more wealth is made or inherited is a question that runs in cycles. We are currently in a period of a lot of uh, wealth creation, and that's all going to get inherited. And this has happened in U.S. history at various points before. And every you know inherited scion of wealth you can trace back a few generations to somebody who made a lot of money in some actual entrepreneurial way. Um, but the picture of the current list of uh, billionaires that you see today is already beginning to crack and you're already beginning to see a lot of names on there who are heirs. And that will, anybody who studies this will tell you that will become more so in the coming uh, decades as uh, people die and people inherit wealth. So, you know, it's just, there are a few leaps that I think it's worth unpacking a little bit. I also think the, the point about U.S. social mobility is extremely subject to uh, mythological reframing. If you compare us to, you know, socialist Western European countries, <laughs> uh, France, Sweden, even the UK, we have much less social mobility than any of those supposedly hidebound 
societies, the chances of somebody who begins poor in the U.S. of becoming wealthy are much less than the chances of uh, a comparable person in any of those countries, although there are certainly countries that are much worse than the U.S. on this score. So um, all that said, it seems to me a bit irrelevant to the question, because from the perspective of democracy, the important question is about the distribution of political power, not about whether people's wealth was in some way legitimately earned or stolen or, you know, the result of the legacy of slaveholding ancestors and any of that stuff. That's just not interesting. The question is about whether people have the political power today that in a democracy they ought to have. And here again, I think the comparative perspective may be useful because the uh, there are many different societies with different forms of inequality of political power, and there are few perfect democracies anywhere. But uh, a particular area where the U.S. is a bit of an outlier is in the extent to which we have decided as a society politically um, and in terms of constitutional law to allow the conversion of money into political power. This is not common in Western democracies, the extent to which we say um, what you described as just the natural order of things, but actually is a choice that any amount of money that you want to spend in politics, that's just the currency of politics. And, you know, we don't give candidates any way to run campaigns other than through raising tons of money. There's not free airtime for the candidates to make their opposing cases on television, you know, instead we buy TV ads all the stuff that makes U.S. democracy quite different um, than any other Western democracy, um, although these things are a matter of degree, I think sets us up for a situation where wealth can be converted into political power somewhat more readily than in most democracies, which isn't in itself necessarily a huge problem, but when you combine it with a pretty hygiene inequality level, uh, and you have um, laws that enable this kind of conversion uh, to proceed without much in the way of friction, uh, you know, you do start to have more of a problem in which the preferences of wealthy people are much more reflected in public policy than are the preferences of anybody else. Okay, so I think there's sort of um, two issues there that I wanted to go into. Um, so the first one is that um, in the United States, like you mentioned, money more readily um, or somewhat more readily uh, can um, purchase or, or be influential in gaining political power. Um, so I, I think if I if I understand the the Citizens United Berlin correctly, um, people can't or, or wealthy people, billionaires, for example, can't actually give the, um, you know, um, large million dollar plus donations, um, you know, whatever they want to candidates directly. Um, instead, they can they can give it to or, or form super PACs, which aren't directly associated with the candidate, but, um, you know, either campaign on behalf of the candidate or that sort of thing. And there I would have to um, ask you about how how you would view limiting that as, you know, not being a violation of free speech. So if there is a candidate running in the election and I want to go and profess my support for the candidate and I want to spend my wealth to run ads, I want to spend my wealth to put up a billboard um, on privately owned land. Um, so 
you know, it's just how, how does preventing free market transactions and, and the exchange of speech, uh, um, you know, how, how does that not pre- present a, a grave constitutional issue? Yeah, well, your use of the of the phrase free market transactions is very evocative because, you know, the question here is how much of our democracy should be governed by free market transactions? We have lots of restrictions on speech of many different kinds. We uh, have kinds of speech that, you know, threats and libel and we have speech that it's criminal to speak. And yet when it comes to the sort of core issues of our democracy, we have a narrow majority of Supreme Court justices who have decided that not just an individual going out and putting up a very large billboard, but in, but even transactions like an individual creating an effect, you know, buying a uh, organization that supplants the usual functions of a political party, even that counts as speech. So in other words, we don't just have people going and putting up an ad. We have uh, a situation in our democracy today where many of what were for all of American history until the 21st century core functions of what our political parties did, like registering voters, organizing rallies, merchandise for the candidates, the TV ads on their behalf that are indistinguishable from being, you know, from the candidate themselves. And in fact, use footage provided by the campaigns. We have allowed all of those functions to be farmed out to unofficial campaign organizations that in theory do not coordinate with the candidates. Although in practice, this line is poorly policed for the same reason we have this regulatory uh, impulse on the Supreme Court. And so as a result, in the name of free speech, which I think everyone can agree that it would be good to allow people to literally speak their minds and say what they believe, we have allowed the creation of massive parapolitical organizations that are wholly beholden not to the voters, not to the people who the voters choose to run them, but instead to um, their donors. And that is substituting what you said at the end, the logic of market transactions, which ordinarily are a good thing in a capitalist society, substituting those for core institutions like the political party that make up our uh, democracy. Okay. Um, so if, if anything, um, just, just looking at the, the, the way the current system is, is, um, you know, organized with the influence of, of say super PACs on, on elections. Um, I would argue that that would make that that makes the system more meritocratic than ever before. Um, because now instead of, um, you know, the, either the political candidate who is the wealthiest getting to getting a, um, you know, a firm edge over their, their competitor, um, you know, if, if you think about it, um, say in the, in, in the last election, if, um, Donald Trump, it was Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and you didn't have, say, that the Citizens United ruling, um, candidates had to just raise money for themselves through small donations with, which were sharply limited, um, you know, at a couple thousand dollars, then you can easily imagine a situation where one candidate is way, way richer than another. Um, and, you know, uses that as, uh, and automatically either has a massive advantage. Now, even if you say that the candidates can't use their own, own money, I would still say that a situation where 
um, you know, anyone who can can um, can campaign on behalf of anyone. There is no limitations at all, um, like there is under the Citizens United ruling. Is makes things. The reason I would say that that makes things more meritocratic is because now all of a sudden everyone has to comp- the candidates um, and the campaigns have to compete for dollars, um, right? Like in the same way that if I want to go out and I want to start a business. I have to raise money from venture capitalists or angel investors. And to do that, I have to prove merit. I have to prove an ability to win a campaign, um, all those sorts of things. Um, and so if I'm a candidate who, and I want to run, my ideas are terrible um, and I have no chance of winning the election, I'm probably not going to attract a lot of campaign donations. But um, if I have good ideas, if I have a platform, if I have a reasonable chance of winning, then I'm probably going to be able to attract donations from people who share my point of view. Um, and because there is so much money out there, there isn't just one or two or three wealthy people. There's, you know, thousands and thousands, um, if not more, um, you know, all that, that follow all across the political spectrum. That means that all of a sudden we're all competing for these same dollars, um, you know, in, in, in an open, open way. So, um, how, how does that make things less meritocratic instead of more? Let's, let's, uh, put a pin in this campaign finance discussion because, you know, I mean, the short answer, although this is getting a little far afield from the book that we're here to talk about, uh, the short answer is um, courts have long understood, and I think it's pretty intuitive for most Americans to understand, that having a meritorious business plan, like I invent something that people want to buy, that's different from having a political idea that convinces a lot of people. And the whole promise of democracy is that separation, the idea that we are not going to run society on just whoever can make the most money is king. Instead, what we're going to do is actually have a system in which we have a politics where people have to make their case with their ideas to the voters, not just to the donors. And if you have one, if you have an idea that is very unpopular with, you know, 90% of Americans, but very popular with a few rich people, say, giving a carried interest loophole to a few hedge fund managers, very popular with a very small number of rich people. And Kirsten Cinema can go to those rich people and say, please give me money or give money to entities that will help my campaign. And I will preserve for you this special carried interest loophole break. And then she can, you know, go, even though the, her constituents in Arizona have no desire for her to do this. She can hold up a big piece of legislation to make sure that those donors' will is done. That's not democracy. That's a corruption of democracy. And, you know, the question is just where the law should draw the line. We certainly draw the line prohibiting some forms of corruption. And the question is just, you know, how far should we go? So I will say to bring it back to the book a little bit that this question of what constitutes corruption and what uh, constitutes, you know, the normal functioning of democracy has been contested throughout. Uh, this line is not very easy to draw. It's tricky. And um, part of the question when you're trying to deal with the concentration of economic and political power that constitutes oligarchy is sort of where do you hem it in? Where do you draw boundaries to make it less true that something can happen like this carried interest loophole preservation story I just told you? Because many generations of reformers of both political parties have tried at different points in American history to do something about forms of corruption that looked like that in the name of uh, hemming in the oligarchy. 
Okay. Um, yeah, you're right. Let's, let's bring it back to, to the book a little bit. Um, so in the description, you start by writing, quote, a bold call to, that, that the book is, quote, a bold call to reclaim an American tradition that argues that the Constitution imposes a duty on government to fight oligarchy and ensure broadly shared wealth. Um, now, the way I see it, the, the only way to ensure broadly shared wealth is to send in the government gun to forcefully take rightfully acquired property from one person and give it to another. Um, so can you tell us a bit about this thesis and outline the argument for how economic inequality is, is a constitutional issue? Yes. So Thomas Jefferson would have strongly disagreed with you on that point, because ultimately the question of where the wealth is uh, and whether it's broadly shared or whether it's just in the few hands of a few people is a question largely of public policy. Thomas Jefferson, I'm bringing him up because he thought he famously said that uh, we can't invent too many devices to divide property. And what he meant was we need to break up the estates. In his era, the biggest wealth was land. We need to break up the estates and not have primogenitor like in England and make sure that we move toward a vision of our economic or our sort of political economy where lots and lots of people owned small plots of land instead of a few giant landowners. And why did he think that was so important? This is from his notes on the state of Virginia, but it, and it eventually becomes part of the public policy of, of many states, even before the constitution is the idea that you need to put in your constitution or in your state constitution and eventually in certain ways in your federal constitution, where we also prohibit titles of nobility, protections against some people becoming, in effect, lords of large chunks of wealth, uh, which in that era was land. Later generations would argue the same thing about some of the new 19th century, sort of end of the 19th century, nation-spanning massive corporations, the sort of early uh, steel and oil and other railroad barons, who, because of their enormous wealth and land ownership, controlled a lot of the politics of the country. I mean, in Montana, one company that was controlled by out-of-state investors from New York, actually, was um, through bribery, uh, basically, and other means, they had the legislature of the state of Montana in their pocket. There was very limited uh, resistance to anything that this one company wanted to ask the legislature to do. And when they at one point did face some resistance, they used the tactic of shutting down operations in the state right before Christmas and throwing large portions of the state out of work as a sort of scare tactic to ensure that they would have as much political power as they could. The idea of broadly shared wealth is the sort of descendant of the Jeffersonian vision of small landholders having an equal stake, or at least it doesn't even need to be equal, but just each some significant stake in the nation's wealth. Jefferson thought that that would help make people independent and able to politically act as citizens. And today, the sort of analog is the idea that by having uh, wealth widely distributed, Americans today uh, are more in a position than they would be if wealth was, you know, even more concentrated in the hands of a few to um, both politically and economically kind of pursue what they want to pursue. That is, Americans aren't all stuck in a position where they're totally dependent on 
one employer who's the only real employer in their area and who if they cross them or vote too many of them vote the wrong way unlike what their employer wants then they risk being thrown out of work you know we don't have too many situations like that because we have a somewhat broader distribution of uh of wealth but you know this is eroding somewhat with time you can see it in the data and i think there is a strong case to be made that that a broad middle class uh and that's the sort of broad distribution of wealth that that i have in mind that a broad middle class is today as it has been for most of american history kind of the foundation of democratic politics so you know from a moral perspective one might care more about preventing poverty and i know maybe we'll talk about that if we have time uh certainly my personal views i would care a lot about poverty but in terms of democracy i actually think that the tradition of argument that we trace in the book um the sort of democracy of opportunity tradition that has these anti-oligarchy ideas in it um i think the people in that tradition have a point that really what you need to focus on is having a broad and open um middle class uh that is big enough that much of america hopefully everybody you know is has a chance to get into it um because without that it it can become hard to sustain a democracy over many generations okay um so that's that's a really interesting point um because you know we've talked a lot about inequality on this show um but being an economics podcast it's almost always approached through the lens of you know what impact would certain policy to target inequality have on innovation unemployment um growth etc um i think this is our, our first time discussing this in sort of a, a context of what would it mean for democracy and that's that's a really interesting um sort of issue to examine here um so so i'm glad you brought that up that's that's a very very interesting thought exercise for me as well um so i mean in in the book you also go through um various periods in american history and talk about the constitutional issues related to the political economy and, and the distribution of economic and political power so can you give us a quick walk through of the key events from the founding to the present day i know there <laughs> might be a lot there but yes yeah, no give us problem a quick, quick i'll give you a second version right 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 i mean so i for some reason we've already ended up discussing a little bit of some of the issues at the founding period of breaking up large landed estates but i think the um the tradition that we're interested in uh extends through the jacksonian revolution and their efforts to prevent monopolies and special government favors from giving too much wealth and power to a few through reconstruction where the reconstruction republicans who really focused on oligarchy in fact their rhetoric about this point is part of why the book is titled what it is a lot of this book is kind of a exposition of the ideology of the reconstruction republicans and what it means today they thought that the slave power as they called it was a dangerous oligarchy that held too much power both politically and economically in uh in too few hands. It might surprise your readers uh or listeners to to know that um a lot of issues that we don't think of today as constitutional law issues were at their origins constitutional law issues like antitrust in the late 19th century and labor law. These both arose because you had these new large concentrations of economic power and i'm using that phrase 
deliberately, not just big companies, but companies that had a lot of market power and a lot of political power. And so uh, the progressive movement arose in response to those developments with antitrust as a new idea whose purpose was to rein in the political power of these new oligarchs who they likened to the slaveholders of, you know, the big plantation owners of, of a generation earlier. And, uh, you know, labor law as well. The idea from the start was that the constitution required some sort of intervention in our political economy to stop, uh, exploitative labor practices that progressive opponents thought resembled slavery. Now, this constitutional vision that I'm kind of sketching in super miniature through a few dots, um, it obviously had various opponents throughout. I mean, the slaveholding constitution had its own whole view of what the constitution meant. And then, you know, there was a backlash against the progressive view that argued exactly a point that you're making earlier, actually, which is still with us today, this point that the progressive views are taking too much from some and giving to others. And not only was antitrust law attacked on that ground, but labor law was attacked on that ground. Um, and the Supreme Court was quite conservative a hundred years ago and was a big proponent of the idea that the Constitution actually prohibits, uh, you know, any serious intervention in the market, including antitrust law or labor law or anything else. Um, and Certainly, we can't have something like Social Security under our Constitution. It's too much taking from one and giving to others. And uh, FDR ran a sustained political campaign against that view and against the Supreme Court's view, really, uh, which was ultimately successful in changing our political orientation uh, and our constitutional orientation toward these matters. And we, in the book, see FDR's uh, efforts there as kind of the apotheosis of the tradition that we're sketching. Um, even though the reconstruction Republicans are really where it, where it got rolling. Um, so it's a long story arc. It's much of American history. We haven't even discussed how this tradition that we're talking about in the book kind of disappeared. Some of your listeners might be interested in that part of the story that late in the uh, sort of second half of the 20th century, we end up in a world where none of these ideas seem like constitutional arguments anymore. Instead, uh, political economy itself kind of goes away and is replaced by economics, by economic science. And the rise of economics and the decline of political economy, um, we, it's a story that, um, I tell in, in a sort of later part of the book, um, that brings us to the situation today where progressives in particular are not that comfortable speaking about political economy in the way that many generations of reformers before them did. And that I think we will need to have people speaking in that register again, if we want to uh, restrain the current uh, tendency toward oligarchy in the same way that we did in the last Gilded Age um, a hundred years ago. So, uh, that's a quick arc through the book. I hope it'll be of interest to, uh, to some of your listeners, whether they, you know, come in agreeing 
or disagreeing or what with with the premises, I hope they'll at least find the story worth reading and diving into the story of how Americans have made these constitutional arguments um, that today don't even sound like they're about constitutional topics, but were uh, when we were more uh, comfortable as a society and particularly progressives with the idea that the Constitution has something to say about um, economic and political inequality. Okay, well, Dr. Fishkin, I'm sure there's uh, hours more um, that we could talk about this topic. <laughs> um, I have a lot of questions, and I'm sure you have a lot of answers. Um, right, right. So, no, I'm sure, um, but thank you. This is this has been great. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, that's that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, so Dr. Fishkin's latest book is titled. Um, the Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, available now. Um, whether you agree or disagree, I strongly recommend um, you go check that out. It is undoubtedly a very interesting read. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.